I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, producer Jonah here. We recorded this podcast in August 2020, which was right at the height of the COVID pandemic in Australia. So bear that in mind while you're listening, although the discussion about putting a dollar value on human life remains just as pertinent today. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Our topic today is, should we put a dollar value on human life? Emil, tell us a little bit more. Thanks, Lloyd. So should we put a dollar value on human life? Well, there's there's nothing like a global pandemic to reveal our moral instincts. As a society, we've been forced to think about the value of life itself in a way most of us have never had to before. COVID-19 is threatening the lives of us all, particularly the elderly and vulnerable. And for many people, our instinct is to do whatever it takes to ensure they are safe. At the same time, lockdowns are crippling the economy and pushing huge debt and other costs to our future selves and to our children costs that will affect our health, happiness, and even life expectancy for decades to come. You know, we know the effects of poverty on suicide rates, for example. So how do we balance our instinct to save lives now with the knowledge that economic pain will almost definitely make lives worse in the future? To help tally up the incredibly complex effects of policy decisions, governments and economists tend to put a dollar value to our life. They say they can actually work it out from the value we put on our own lives, and we'll get into that in the podcast. And it comes in at around five to ten million dollars in many wealthy countries, or 150k per year. They also adjusted for the likely quality of life. They they use terms like quali, Q A L Y, which is the quality adjusted life year. Now, normally all of this happens behind closed doors, but COVID nineteen has opened that door, and it's been massively confronting for many people challenging the core instinct we hold for the sanctity of life, which says that a life is inherently precious and can never be reduced to a dollar figure. It's this instinct to work when we as a society spend whatever it takes to rescue a child caught down a well. So how do we make sense of all of this? Are we naive or virtuous to want to spend whatever it takes to save the vulnerable now? And are these economists heartless or are they guided by a more difficult morality which can save and improve even more lives now and into the future. Lloyd, who have we got to help make sense of this moral minefield? Mil, mm, I'm happy you used the word minefield. We have two guests today, Matt Beard and Gigi Foster. Matt is a moral philosopher with a background in applied and military ethics. He has taught philosophy and ethics for several years at academic institutions. He's extensively published. Uh, Matt is also a columnist with New Philosopher magazine and a podcast on ABC's Short and Curly program. Gigi Foster, our other guest, 
is a professor with the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales, formerly educated at Yale and the University of Maryland. And in 2019, Gigi was named 2019 Young Economist of the Year by the Economic Society of Australia. She's a leading economics communicator, has her own podcast, and Emil, this topic is a very hot-button issue, as you've highlighted. Gigi has been on the Australian Current Affairs show Q&A and has received a real backlash from the public for her views, with some of that coming from moral philosopher Matt uh, on social media, who's also thought extensively about this topic. This is the first time they've spoken together. Let's bring on the guests. Welcome, Matt and Gigi. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Matt, let's start with you. Could you present your view on why it's problematic to put a dollar value on human life? It, it might be helpful to talk through background. So the way in which I started to think through this question is when I was doing a lot of work in military ethics. And a lot of the, a lot of the work that happens in military ethics is you are doing things that are on a prima facie level seem to be bad, right? You are destroying stuff, you are causing people to die. And so how you make decisions about the ways in which that is done and when that is an appropriate thing to do, do come down to things that on a surface level look like kind of cost-benefit analyses, right? You know, what are the what are the benefits that are going to be obtained by going to war? What are the costs of going to war? And often a lot of the problems arise because um, nation states and politicians are particularly inattentive to the costs, especially the indirect costs of going to war. Um, and then on an operational level, um, what are going to be the benefits in terms of advancing our strategy, in terms of prosecuting um, the, the goals that we have, and ideally those are just goals of this particular operation? What are the costs going to be in terms of the lives of our own people, in terms of civilian lives? And then how do we make a decision around that? And so we, we talk about those as questions of proportionality and questions of necessity. Um, and that's the way that I first began to think about some of these questions. And there is within the way in which those questions are thought through um, in a military environment, there is no algorithmic approach to kind of scoring those kinds of questions. It's not as though you assign a particular value to allied personnel, you assign a particular value to civilians or anything like that so that you can kind of take a decision theory approach um, to kind of quantify which approach you should take. There is space that is left for discernment, for judgment, and that means that we need to put a lot of work into the individual kind of character and capability of the people who are making those decisions. Um, so those, those, that's, that was kind of my background um, experience. And then when I started to work in um, doing more work in AI and technology and algorithmic decision-making, um, that's another environment in which um, really complex decisions have to be made and where values have to be decided in advance. Um, and at that stage, I started to see just what happens when uh, values are predetermined and assigned um, by people who aren't necessarily attending to a wide range of different variables where um, particular ideas are baked in to what assume, are, are taken to be kind of neutral um, modes of making decision that are kind of scientific or are ent entirely reasonable, um, rational. And so there's a, um, 
there's a scholar named Kathy O'Neill who wrote this book called we Weapons of Math Destruction. Um, and she talks about algorithms as opinions written in code. And I tend to think a little bit about some of the approaches that are taken um, to some modes of kind of putting a price on life. And one of the ones that I have in mind here is like quality adjusted life years within health economics, where there are a range of opinions that are um, washed over or painted over um, by the appearance of a very scientific and very methodical process. Um, so that, that's that's one that's one kind of concern yeah. that I have. And I think the other one is that the the big assumption that is taken in terms of the project of assigning a value to lives and the way in which we assign that value tends to orient, it tends to be what I would say is future oriented. So it thinks about, as you said, Emil, you know, what is the anticipated utility value and not necessarily utility just in terms of usefulness, but whatever we choose to measure that as well-being, flourishing, overall moral goodness. But we quantify that in some way and we think about what is the future state that will be created um, in terms of doing that. And so long as we've attended to all the factors, we think, well, that's probably the right way to make those decisions. But recently, um, a couple of scholars, and one in particular is a, um, is a philosopher and a health researcher from the University of Queensland, his name is Brian McCandy, um, was talking about the ways in which um, that future-oriented approach can sometimes, again, paint over a range of relevant factors. And the most specific one are kind of past injustices. So when you're thinking about the future benefits of a particular choice, well, someone might not yield as much happiness or have as much quality of life going forward um, if you allocate them resources. But the reasons for that might be a series of past injustices, which if you don't attend to, you wind up doubling down on the injustices that they've already experienced. So that got me interested in thinking about what a backward-facing approach to making this decision can be. Like, what, what happens if we look not just at people's anticipated futures, but also at their historical experiences? Um, and that's the kind of approach that I've taken. And, and then I think it's been COVID-19 that has put this question into focus for me, which has been for so many people, which is, I think, what has brought this issue and discussion to a head. Well, let's jump to you, Gigi, and then we'll explore some of these questions of the, the, the needs-based and, you know, how how much can we compare apples with oranges with pears? At what point does it start becoming a bit ridiculous? But... <laughs> Um, I, I guess I would point to examples in uh, in people's lives every day that show us that they do put a price on their own lives. And the main way that, that we've been able in economics to figure this out is to look at the revealed preferences of people when they take uh, jobs of different levels of risk. So the quality, which, which Matt spoke of, is not actually the only currency in which economists speak of the value of life. It's also been spoken of in terms of the value of a statistical life year. And that's usually something around five to about five million dollars can be a little less, can be a little more. Um, and the idea is, well, how much does an individual person value his or her life? How much would they, you know, sort of spend in order to retain it? And we get that estimate by um, using as it as a raw input the wage differential between how much you would be willing to accept as a wage to take a less risky job versus how much you'd be willing to accept as a wage to take a job with a little bit higher of a risk. And the idea being that you're being paid to take on a bit more risk to your life. And so if we then inflate that amount of risk to, you know, oops, you're definitely gonna die. And then we inflate the, that wage increment to that proportional amount, then we, we are able to retrieve an implicit value that you have placed on your own life. 
by accepting that higher risk job for that much more money. Yeah. Basically, it's the revealed preference aspect there of an individual's decision, which then leads us to, you know, to an actual dollar value, which is the value of a statistical life. So there's no, there's no one sitting there, but, you know, behind closed doors saying, this is how much I think you're worth. They are analyzing what we think our lives are worth as a statistical sort of average. Absolutely. So it's it's essentially an implicit revealed preference. Even if you know, don't realize you're making that choice, you are when you accept different wages for different jobs. So, and then of course, that's at the individual level. Then you can go to the societal level and, you know, you can simply observe what a government like Australia does when deciding which drugs to put on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. We choose those drugs which we feel past some kind of a sniff test. And the sniff test is generally, well, do they give enough benefit for the cost? That is basically what it is. Now, whether you count that benefit in terms of qualities, regardless of need, or whether you augment that that quality-based assessment with some notion of who really needs the support in your society, given the distribution of, of resources that exists, that's you know an empirical question. And I agree with, with Matt that sometimes a strict quality-based approach can be can can be ignorant of certain kinds of disadvantages of inequalities in the society. And for example, a child suffering from an extremely rare cancer, um, you know, if we're never going to accept a drug for that person, we're just saying, well, you know, no matter no matter what happens, sorry, you're just left out, right? That's that feels a bit harsh. So there are sometimes arguments, perhaps, for considering, you know, augmenting the quality-based approach. But from a whole of society perspective, um, you know, we simply do this all the time. We put a price on a quality adjusted life year. When do we do it? Can you give some examples? That'd be really helpful. Like, because this is pervasive, isn't it? Measuring the value of human life is used in so many calculations. When's it used? Absolutely. So when the the, uh, people who decide which drugs to put on the PBS list are are given an application from a drug company for, for example, a new intervention or a new drug, just a new pill for something, what they do is they say, well, okay, when, when a person takes this drug, are they expected to get a, a single quality of life year improvement to their life? And a quality adjusted life year is one year lived as a well, value of one, a quality of one equals a year lived at perfect health, perfect health. And if you have, for example, depression, then the value of, uh, of a quality for your year that's lived in depression is more like 0.8. So the quality you know, number increments downwards as you suffer more, and it's perfectly one if you're perfectly healthy. So we ask, as a society, we ask our drug companies to to provide us with drugs which are going to extend our life or improve the quality of our life to a particular degree, which we quantify in qualities. And then we say, okay, that's how much you're giving us. We are willing to spend up to X amount of dollars per quality. And that X in Australia today is about $50,000. Hmm. The UK, it's about 30,000 30, pounds. Just for our listeners and for, for, for my education as well, just to add to Emil's mm-hmm. question, I assume this is um, not just done in in health departments. It's done uh, around roads, traffic. What 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 you know? Certainly. What should be invested safety. in safety? Uh, can you just give us maybe one or two other examples following on Emil's question? Sure. So one of the um, you know the, the many there's so much fodder for jokes about economists, but one of the um, ones that's very popular is it's only an economist who will ask what is the optimal number of dead babies, and. Where that comes from is that somebody has to decide what the speed limit is on our roads. Right? Hmm. Somebody has to decide that. And the higher the speed limit is, the more deaths are going to occur 
from collisions on the roads and probably the more collisions as well because people are going faster and right and of course collisions mean dead people right now if you have speed limits of five kilometers per hour then you're not going to have probably any yeah. fatalities from your yeah. traffic accidents right so you're making a decision there to accept a number of deaths and that decision is made by appealing to the value of a statistical life usually right those decisions and decisions about environmental regulation you know how much pollution do we allow etc um that that kind of decision where you're making a whole of society choice in relation to basic infrastructure is usually driven by some notion of value of statistical life right and the application of, well, how much are we paying if we don't set that high a, a speed limit? So if we had a lower speed limit, we're essentially impeding trade, we're impeding mobility, we're going to pay costs in terms of GDP, in terms of not even just that, but our mental and emotional costs. If it costs me that much more time to drive to my cousin's house, I'm not going to do it as much. I'm not going to interact with him as much. There won't be as much richness in my life, perhaps, because I have less time interacting with him. So there are there are costs to, to you know, setting that, that speed limit lower, even if we know that a higher speed limit is going to also have a price mm. in terms of lives. At the same time, if one child is caught down a well, we will almost as a society spend whatever it takes to rescue that child. So there are competing systems here at work in our brain. And I said in our introduction that I almost feel like uh, it must be annoying for economists and, and people in government because the population, society has been, has gotten the keys to a whole range of thought processes that normally they're not involved in. We're interested in saving the kid down the well. And the idea that lives are being valued, maybe through our implied uh, preferences or not, uh, is, is goes so far against virtue ethics, against the sort of categorical ethics. How do we square these three foundations of ethics, the utilitarian, the virtue, you know, the categorical, and try to make sense of at what points do we do whatever it takes to get, get that child out of the well, and at other times we're happy to kill, you know, uh, 20,000 kids if it means we can drive at 65K, not 60K? Yeah, I, I mean, my instinct is is firstly not to square them because I think that what they are each doing is making different claims about the ways in which we can make decisions. However, I tend to lean towards a virtue-based approach and what, what a virtue-based approach is going to say is like, well, you know, the the excellent reasoner, you know, Aristotle talked about the phronomos, the, the person who is excellent at practical reason, is at times going to pay attention to outcomes. And I think it would be uh, naive for us to say um, that, you know, and at the, at the risk of losing the kind of formal debate here about saying we should absolutely never categorically put some kind of value on things, um, there are times when that is the only option that is available to us. Um, and there are times when it would be, you know, there's a there's a quote from a military ethicist who I quite like, um, whose name is Michael Walzer. He says, the absolutist who cries justice though the heavens fall has not thought about what it really means for the heavens to fall. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something to that, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, that we can stand on our principles um, and, and we do some research at the Ethics Centre about, you know, different ethical profiles that people have and their decision-making profiles and we always call out to the people who tend to fall into that kind of, um, you know, principled-based kind of absolutist approach that one of the things that you need to pay attention to are what are the moral costs of standing on principle here? Because there often well, are some. If, if, if you're saying, though, that there are three principles and they all should almost be kept in their own box and you don't need to tally the three up and divide them by three, do you then believe that it is important to value life, but it's just one of the tools in our toolbox rather than we shouldn't be valuing life at all. 
Like, is are, yeah. are you against the concept of valuing your life, or the problem is a we just overuse it and are too reductive, and it's got implicit biases and issues with it, and let's let's use it. You know, let's just make sure it's mm-hmm. one of the tools that we have, rather than being you know won over by the seeming simplicity and beauty of a of a spreadsheet that spits out yes or no. A distinction that I would want to make is between the question of evaluation and then the question of do we put a dollar value or do we put a price on life? I think those are two quite different things. Mm -hmm. I think we can do a kind of weighing um, which has as much art as it does science, like the kind of examples that I was talking about in, in the military context where we think about proportionality. We are broadly concerned with potential outcomes without going to the point of, you know, uh, of getting so precise in those kinds of measurements and needing to quantify those measurements in particular ways. Um, I'm, I'm aware that, you know, that that doesn't work when you are an economist who is dealing with numbers and dealing with spreadsheets. When you've got to make decisions and recommendations at a certain point, does it get tricky to make a recommendation because you're trying to weigh up a lot of things in your head, but you actually need a piece of paper which actually can tally things up? And how else do you tally things up but with actually looking at revealed preferences for people and working out what's important to them. Let's just put it this way. You're in, you're in the health department, uh, you Matt Beard, uh, you have to distribute resources, meaning hospitals, drugs. You, you have to make that decision. Uh, you are now sitting in that health department. You've got whatever the number is, let's call it $20 billion or $10 billion to, to distribute. How, how do you make a decision about who gets what and which area gets a hospital and, and who gets the drug? I mean, how, how, how would you make that decision if you were the Minister of Health? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would make that decision based on a number of different indices. Firstly, I, I think that there's an interesting question, which is like, how would I make that decision mm. as, as me? Mm. I don't think I would. I think that these questions are ones that um, need to be had by a range of different people. And I think one of the discussions that has arisen around COVID-19 is that suddenly we're seeing how the sausage gets made a little bit, right? Like yeah. we aren't particularly good at um, at accepting the methods by which our ordinary lives, lives are created. Um, and we see this when it comes to supply chains. We see this when it comes to questions of animal welfare. And now we're seeing this when it comes to questions of the ways in which economic policy and health decisions get made. And people are um, not necessarily comfortable with that, and that's why they are much more comfortable with the idea that when there's a child down a well, we go and save them. Um, but so, so the question of how how I would go about allocating these resources, um, I think that one of the things that I would be wanting to do is ensure that I was comparing like with like. I would want to be emphasising that we want to get maximal benefit and out of out of the healthcare and ensure that as many people as possible are receiving that healthcare. But I would be wanting as well to add some kind of qualification for that, which is to say that there is there are some people who need healthcare more than others. And there are some people who have been historically denied access to healthcare more than others. And I think if we eliminate those kinds of considerations from our metric because we are simply trying to quantify or put a, a maximal value on things, then we are missing something. But that could be a that could be a algorithm enhancement we might mm-hmm. need to take into account things that haven't been. I mean, moving to you, Gigi, what are some of the limitations of of this system of using the revealed preferences 
and then comparing a whole range of things that you know with any, with the best will in the world feel like don't deserve to be next to each other the the pain and suffering to my uh, my children versus potential death to my parents. How do we do that in good faith? Well, I absolutely agree with um, with Matt that it is impossible, truly, to reconcile uh, two sides of this coin. One side being the value that we place on the things we see in our lives, the things we love in our lives, what is salient to us, um, what we would emotionally say. Oh, yes, we must do that. If we see, you know, a cat stuck in a tree, we will in his crying and it you know it's obviously scared we will go out and we will try to save that cat we won't be thinking what could i by contrast do with my time other than saving this cat perhaps i could generate more welfare doing something else right mm. and and so there is that but on the other side of the coin this reality that in any society you only have so much to spend you don't have a money tree right? there's no sense in which resources are infinite material resources are infinite. And so you must make a decision about how to allocate them. And that decision carries priorities. And it is just it just does. And so if we if we refuse to actually acknowledge that and in, indeed in some detail, right? If we sort of say, well, at a certain point we're going to start waving our hands, which is kind of what I'm I'm, I'm hearing Matt to say, like, you know, one should recognize the categories of costs and benefits, but maybe not put exact values on all of the different types of benefits because that gets a little bit squeamish kind of thing. There are pulls in both directions, aren't there? We want to, we want to include everything. Exactly. So, so I don't disagree that there is this, this irreconcilability, though, between the, the great value we have for the things that are in our lives and the child down the well, et cetera, you know, things that are salient on the one hand, and on the other hand, the impossibility in the real world of assigning an infinite value to every single thing. And so it is the job of the government to to negotiate and navigate through that tension. And, and that's one of the reasons why governments and particularly economists who work in government will never be fast friends of anyone. We, we are never fully on anybody's side. But is it possible, Gigi, is it possible, I know that there's a methodology that makes it look like it's possible, but is it possible to use economics and dollar values to equate goods that are so entirely different? Yes. I mean, obviously it's it's a bit unusual and probably to some people, as, as you have said, and as Matt has said, quite shocking. Uh, we've, we've lifted the bonnet on this during COVID yeah. in a way that I think is very uh, shocking to many people. But there are currencies that we can use. So one of the currencies that's been developed recently by a colleague of mine, actually, at the London School of Economics is the well-be, which is the well-being year. And the idea there is we would like to be able to value so that we can measure and count the cost of the suffering that has been inflicted upon us by the very draconian restrictions to human movement that have been um, put in place in Australia and other countries around the world in response to COVID. And, you know, the quality doesn't actually really capture that very well. Um, so mental health suffering, the, the cost of loneliness, the cost of despair, the cost of stress because you haven't been able to see your friend or your family or go to your mother's funeral or, or whatever. And, and that kind of thing can be captured in this new currency. You know, let's say the algorithm uh, captured things more efficiently and those sort of things were captured and two people whose quality of life went from one to 0.5, does that equate to somebody going from one to losing their life? Is there, when's there a moment where losing a life is actually different from two half losses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you're saying. So basically, should we count the actual loss per se as a discrete event and not simply, uh, you know, count up sm small numbers? Or is there a surplus value or, or lack of value, you know, a surplus tragedy in losing a life that can't be captured as 
5.5 reductions? Yeah, look, it's a valid question. And I think you could make the argument that that is true. And that is one of the reasons, in fact, that most people would want, like remember when those people, those those boys were lost down the well in some someplace recently? Cave. Yeah. <laughs> I nearly made a movie about that. You made a movie about it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there we are. So, you know, and, and everybody around the world was pulling for them. We were all like, yes, send in the rescuers. Let's go, right? What and- were you saying, Gigi? Were you saying send in the rescuers or spend the money more efficiently? It was a bit of a drama. But I mean, the thing about that, that that is interesting and different, I mean, obviously, as an economist, I look at that and think, oh, my goodness, think of all of the things that could be done with these resources that would save right. more people, right? But, <laughs> but at the same time, the value of publicly, openly uh, committing that kind of resource to saving young lives is, I think, very great in the in the realm of sending a message that we are all in a community together. We are all responsible for each other's welfare, our own, our families, our communities, our nations. And so it binds the nation together. And I think that sort of value is actually something that is strongly underappreciated by economists and indeed by many other social scientists. And, and so that's really the value of, you know, putting all the resources towards the kid in the well. It's to demonstrate that we are a society that, that looks after its own. And, and we do that, of course, under the bonnet all the time with the PBS and all of the other ways in which we allocate resources to try to get the best welfare for people. But sometimes we need a PR moment. Right? We need to say, look, hey, we are for people. It's a virtue moment, isn't it? It's a moment where virtue trumps. I mean, does quality entrench existing disadvantages? Uh, Let's assume I'm, you know, I'm a type 2 diabetes patient. Um, I'm going to get a lower quality score. Um, But I could also potentially say type 2 diabetes has a correlation with lower income. Um, And so am I going to be discriminated now consistently because I'm on, you know, I have diseases or issues that are linked to... Mm lower income. I mean, is this, is this generally, is it structurally just unfair? Well, it's a very good question. And this notion of, uh, you know, procedural fairness or distributive justice, all these things are, are very important to bear in mind when making these decisions. Um, in the example that you give, the person who has diabetes actually is in a position where the government is more likely to do something for him than for somebody who doesn't have diabetes, et cetera, paribus, all else equal, because there is something that can be improved. Right. So, yes, it's true that the quality of his life as lived is considered lower than the quality right. of life as lived by somebody who doesn't have an existing disease. But when you talk about resource allocation moving forward, it's the sicker who actually can benefit more right, from any resource because there are generally diminishing returns to the expenditure of resources. So if you spend a dollar on me, I'm very healthy yeah. and you very basically don't have any health problems, you're not going to get much quality bang for that buck. But if you spend a dollar on somebody living in poverty in India with parasites and dysentery and you know HIV and who knows what else, you're going to get a big bang for the buck. Do you, do you think that the values that you're talking about here that sit within the equations and algorithms, do you think they've been wrestled with sufficiently by economists or do they get smuggled in sort of in the attempt to uh, compare apples and oranges most efficiently? Like have they, I think that was one of your points, wasn't it, Matt, that there may be some values and some assumptions in there that haven't been quite as discussed or exposed or wrestled with. I mean, I think that my point that I just made about basically the, um, the the benefit of spending more money on those who are already less advantaged 
yep. relative to you know the lower benefit of spending that money money on more advantaged people. I think that's roundly understood by economists. I mean that is yep. what we say all the time when we talk about the declining marginal utility of expenditure on different parts of the population relative to their income. Right. So we spend more on on the poor in our welfare programs because they need it more. Right. That is exactly yep. what we do. Right. So it, it indeed it is the the value that we can get out of that extra dollar being different across people based on their existing, pre-existing disadvantage. So I think that is very much understood. And the quality mm. framework does not somehow, uh, you know, omit that. It doesn't, it's not ignorant to that. It, in fact, it's, if anything, it's, it's exactly an embodiment of that principle because we are equating an improvement of a quality rather than just a dollar. That assumes you can improve the quality, right? Like, like I think it's worth noting that qualities and variations like DALI's, disability-adjusted life years, have been roundly criticised by precisely the people they claim to be helping, that people from disability communities are really strongly opposed to these kinds of methodologies. And one of the reasons for that is because a lot of them have lifelong conditions mm. that they're not necessarily going to improve their life years. They're not necessarily going to prolong their life in any particular way. Perhaps in some cases you might be able to make a case that it stops the further decline of their life years in some kind of measurable way. But there are a lot of groups who simply say that, you know, this is, if you try to measure and score and evaluate the benefits that I'm going to achieve from this, you're not gonna find any, but that doesn't mean that I am no less worthy of care. And so I, I take Gigi's point that this is something that, that we try to wrestle with and that, that, and that groups try to, to account for, but I think it is worth noting that a number of the groups who, who are supposedly gonna be the beneficiaries beneficiaries of this approach do not like it very much. That's a very interesting point. So Matt, can I just follow up on that? So I, I would argue that that's perfectly, obviously, that's a, an important preference to be taking into consideration, but we would need to see what is the benefit. And perhaps it is a benefit that can really only be encapsulated in a currency like the well-being, like the well-being life year, rather than the quality. And well-beings are a new invention, and they are about suffering, mental suffering, well-being, basically a sense of well-being. So a well-being is one point on a zero to ten life satisfaction scale. So people are asked a question overall: How satisfied are you with your life? And they can answer on a scale of zero to ten. And so if some new treatment, intervention, or whatever to someone with a disability right, is able to, to raise their score on that scale from, a let's say, a four to a five, right, because it's not going to be up near eight, because that's what the healthy population on average will report, then that is one well-being, and that should be counted. And if you if you go through the mechanics of it, about six well-bees equals one quality, and so you can then translate back into the currency, which allows us to allocate resources towards those interventions. Now, if there is no real benefit, then why do we do it? So that is the, that is the challenge. If, if there is an offense there about trying to evaluate the, the, the amount of benefit that we are achieving as a society or as individuals from expenditure, okay, that's fine, but it needs to be articulated. If it's simply a moral offense, then that becomes more difficult, but it still potentially can be reflected in something like the well-being. Gigi, when Matt talked previously about this uh, needs-based approach, and, you know, when we look at COVID and trying to weigh up the cost of, you know, lockdowns and protecting the people who are vulnerable now with potential future costs in the, in, in the future, do you think that the quality type approach or this approach that's just trying to value the present and the future in some sort of equal way can miss the uncertainty of the future? The fact that maybe 
we will have more than we think we do in the future. Maybe we've got more scope and there are more resources. This is one of Matt's earlier points. We, we, we may have more resources than we think we have. I don't think anyone quite realized that we would be able to respond to a crisis with quite as much money as governments around the world have. And, you know, the monetary policy saying that we can print as much money as we want and that has less effects on us than we thought it might have. I mean, the future may change. How do we factor that into in a model? So absolutely, the future may change. And um, that's one of the things that any cost-benefit analysis must must reckon with. And yeah. so quality itself is not is not really the best, you know, kind of currency to think about risk and valuation of uncertainty uh, with. It's yeah. really much more when you do the cost-benefit analysis and you're looking forward, you have to make judgment calls about what's likely to happen, of course. And, you know, in the case of COVID, yes, it's a it's a relatively new virus, although honestly, at this point, it's not that new. We actually know quite a lot about it now, how to treat it, uh, how it passes. We, we know much, much more than we did in, in you know, February. And so we also have much uncertainty about other things, too. In fact, I would yeah. say right now the biggest area of uncertainty is how badly have we screwed ourselves economically by the responses that we've, we've put in place to this COVID-19 thing. And I would also not claim, in fact, that what we've chosen is to protect the vulnerable today in favor of the livelihoods of those tomorrow. We have chosen to hurt everyone today, not protect the vulnerable because instead of protecting the vulnerable effectively and in a targeted fashion, we have distributed our resources in a scattergun way across the entire population, many of whom are not vulnerable to this thing particularly at all. Gigi, is there, is there a number that would be in your mind or in your model which would say, number of deaths, which would say, if we got to that, that number, the, the cost is too high? Well, it's interesting you asked that question. Um, I'll say two things. First, I did put together a draft cost-benefit analysis for the Victorian Parliament, which I'm happy to uh, give you a link to and, and your listeners can have a look at that, in which I, I make an estimate of how many people we would potentially have lost in Australia in the worst-case scenario. And the worst-case scenario is one where we had the, the highest per capita death rate that has been observed in any country in the world. Okay, and that's what I talk about when I'm saying data, mm -hmm. right? What has actually happened? Not what did the model say was going to happen, but what is actually that's data? What has happened after people have used precautions? Well, not necessarily. In different countries in the world, you've had varying degrees of lockdown. Some some countries haven't had much at all. Others have had more lockdowns than others. Others have had right. total breakouts in the aged care facilities. There's been a lot of different things. But if we did the worst thing we could possibly have done in the world, right, and had the worst result. How many people are we talking about and how many qualities are we talking about having lost, right? So I've got that number and at the upper bound for that is 26,000 Australians, okay? And that number is a lot less than the initial numbers being bandied about in March, which were more like 150,000 or 250,000 even. So first of all, that was an order of magnitude off at least. And the second thing to say is, yes, if you take this, this modeling seriously and you say, well, you know, at what point is it actually economically and morally rational to lock down an economy because of a health threat. At what point in terms of the virility of that, of that health threat, right? Well, you can get to a number, and I think it's something like my colleague has actually done this in um, the LSE, the one who came up with the Welby uh, currency. It's the same person, and he, he just did a sort of a thought experiment. How bad would a, would a bug have to be to justify locking down a whole economy? And I think his answer was something like it would need to kill 7% of the people uh, in, a, in, a, in a country. So you know, that's, that's kind of the scale we're talking about, but but certainly not what we've seen 
Because what we've seen within COVID is somewhere between 0.05% and 0.1% of the population in any country dying from this thing. You're probably familiar uh, with this work, but as I understand, uh, what is his name? Kip Viscushi. Uh, is that right? He's written a lot on on the pricing of, of, of life. Has, has he not come out with the fact that when he looks at it, you know, and he does a lowball calculation, that the high costs of mortality and of not shutting down the economy are too high? I mean, is that is that not a is that not a, a, a another strong view that some of your colleagues in economics would have? I don't know who Viscusi is, but I'm happy to engage with his arguments. I mean, I will say that some of the mistakes my colleagues have made are to uh, overestimate how many people have died, um, would have died if we had not locked down, mm-hmm. as I just explained. Another one is to use the wrong value of life. So, using a value of a statistical life, five million dollars, uh, as the value of one COVID death is way higher than society would place on those deaths in a normal time. Okay, so that's way right. out of proportion to what would normally be done. So it's inefficient. Well, it's not just inefficient, it's amoral, it's unethical. It's, it's not right. valuing human life. And, and also there's an ignorance of the longer term costs. And those, those are, you know, in the economic sphere, in the, in the social sphere, um, in the psychological sphere, you know, children who are exposed to more domestic violence, who grow up with those scars and carry those scars their whole life. Crowded out healthcare right now, cancer screenings that are missed and then more people die from cancer. I mean, all these kinds of mm-hmm. costs that were basically swept under the carpet, ignored, not paid attention to, not acknowledged, not counted. And, and then we end up with that kind of analysis. Can I take it back to you, Matt? Well, you made an interesting point when we spoke before the podcast that this is all assumed that resources are finite, whatever that number is. But actually, we can change as a society. We can be more efficient. We can, you know, show more compassion in the future. We can do things that we don't expect ourselves to do. Well, there are lots of other things that we can do, right? Like there are lots of other ways of collecting resources. Like we could impose higher taxes on wealthy people. Um, For example, that would be one way of expanding the pool of resources, um, which if you looked at the the cost-benefit analysis, if you looked at like the moral justifications for who is benefiting from that versus who is suffering from that, there are other places to draw those resources from rather than saying, well, take these two groups of vulnerable people, you must choose between them. I think when we stipulate this and when someone like John Daly at the Grattan Institute set set this entire COVID discussion up by saying, it's a trolley dilemma. We have to choose between two different groups. I think right. it set us up to fail in terms of the way that we were thinking through these problems. Um, because firstly, the, the, when you're dealing with a genuine trolley dilemma, the, the causality is linked. So when you pull that lever, two things happen at the exact same time. When we're dealing with a complex system, which is you know a global pandemic, global economies, local economies, policing enforcement, mental health, like there are so many systemic factors there that just mean the trolley analogy does not fly as a way of thinking through this problem. Um, But Matt, sorry, I'm unclear here. Are you saying we don't have to make choices? No, I'm not saying that we don't have to make choices at all. I'm saying that when we paint these kinds of false binaries based on what what is in front of us and we take the parameters of that choice as stipulated for us, we miss other choices that are available to us. And I would agree, I think, with, with Gigi's point, which is to say that when, when you try to kind of address all of these kinds of problems that emerge, whether they be for, for different people's outcomes and different people's um, health and well-being or for their flourishing writ large, although I'm a little bit hesitant to lump those two things together because I think that we do have to take a hit to our flourishing when there are people whose survival is at stake. But but setting that aside, like I think that some of these issues uh, that have happened during a pandemic reflect 
underlying um, ethical, political, economic, and social issues within our society. And it's not to say that, you know, we can cast a magic spell and fix those problems, you know, once this pandemic has happened. But it is to say, look at all of the historical things that have come to pass that have been amplified and magnified in this situation, all of which were potential different choices that could have been made in the past that weren't made that have left us in this bed. Um, and then what we do when we're in that situation, when we've painted all those choices and made all those choices, and then we go here now in this microcosm, this right here is the moment of choice that needs to be made. We abdicate responsibility for all of the historical choices that found us in that situation in the first place. And we set a recipe for allowing those different situations that brought us to this moment of choice to happen again and again. It's an interesting point that, that, that we can widen the frame and things may not be quite as limited as they seem to be when we're right in the moment. I want to, before we round up this section, and we're just going to move over in a sec to Lloyd asking just a couple of questions about the, the principle of charity itself. I wanted to ask you a moral question, Matt, which I, I just came to in preparing for this. I suddenly thought, what happens if the vulnerable people, if the, let's I call them the grandparents, uh, in a, you know, just as a, uh, a general term, what happens if our grandparents said we would be happy to take the risk for the benefit of our grandchildren and the, their economic future? Like war heroes, they, they, they do not want the economy to lock down and for suffering to happen on to, into the future, um, which will affect their grandkids. Does that make it more moral to do so? Or, or do, you know, morally, they, they don't have the right to consent to that? Yeah, of course, they have the right to, to we, we all take risks on behalf of on behalf of people that we care about. And one of the interesting things that I was thinking about that we haven't had a chance to talk about is, you know, um, when we were talking about evaluating kind of the value of the statistical life based on the increased risk that someone is going to take in particular modes of work. Um, I think there's a there's a really interesting shift that happens when we move from that discussion to the discussion we're having now, which is not I get to put a value on my life, but we get to put a value on my life. And I think something really different and transformative happens um, in that case. If people stand up and say, I am willing to undertake this risk, and this is a risk that I alone undertake, because there are people who have been said, like, you know, I'm not going to wear masks because I'm comfortable with the risk because I'm healthy, when, in fact, the risk is not limited to them. That's a risk that they are also imposing on other people as a result of doing that. But but in the case that there is just a, you know, a generational voice that was genuinely representative in that way. I think this is a kind of a hypothetical thought experiment rather than something yeah. that could actually happen. Well, you could um, do a census and say that people over 75, you know, have 65% of them are really happy to have limited lockdown, to have them locked down, even though they know it increases their risk because they don't want to impose the cost on the future. Is that Would that sway you at all? I'd be very concerned for the poor 35 percent. Um, you know, I, I think, I think, and then I think, you know, it, it's, it's one consideration, right, to say that people sure. say I am comfortable with this level of risk. Um, we see this a lot. You know, there were there were my parents were comfortable with risk, but I wasn't comfortable with them taking the risk. Right, I said, and then you it know, becomes you were, you you were know, ridiculously conservative, large... Emil. <laughs> yeah, well, they were crazy. This is the writ large policy version of, I used to be a barista at a cafe and nothing drove me more crazy than was when, when two people would argue about who was going to pay and I'd have two different people trying to push $20 at me. No, 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 I'm going to be the one who's going to pay. Right. 
writ large, this is the policy version of what you would have playing out there, two different cohorts arguing about who is willing to sacrifice what for whom. Um, and that's where, you know, some some data and, and some kind of principled argument. Is that called the barista's dilemma now? Yeah, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, let's, let's coin it, shall we? Um, yeah. So I think that consent and the willingness to undertake a risk is one factor. Um, yeah. It's, it's not a trump, and no, no, never has it been. You know, we we see in the um, in times of in times of heightened political tension, there is a cohort of people who will say, "Well, I am willing to to go to war for this particular issue. I am willing to sign up." You know, military people saying they would be, happily be deployed um, for humanitarian intervention in some particular area, like Syria, for example. Um, I knew lots of people who were who were working in defence who would have been more than happy to be deployed as boots on the ground in Syria. So they were willing to undertake the risk and there were people saying, well, we can't risk our personnel. So it trumps that argument. But, but it's, a, it's a multi-pillared kind of issue, right? Okay. Well, look, let's wrap up this section and move on, Lloyd, to a small moment at the principle of charity. Lloyd? Thanks, Emil. Um, Shiji, I'm going to start with, start with you. Uh, you know, we just wanted to chat to both of you about the principle of charity. And, and um, I'm going to start with you. You've, uh, you know, I saw your, your clip. I watched a little bit of the clip of, of you on Q&A uh, the, with Hamish MacDonald. And uh, that's a television show for those of you not familiar with it. Um, and you know, it, it seemed, I think one of his questions to you is, is why are you advocating for people to die? And I was just wondering, outside of the answer to that, how, how have you felt about the level of charity that has been given to your argument? Uh, that's, that's my first question. And my second question is, what do you think you could have done better to get people to be more charitable to you? Interesting. Um, So I guess in relation to the first question, I've been very disappointed at the lack of vision, particularly emanating from my own profession during this period. I think that we as a profession have failed Australia in its hour of greatest need. And we have failed in our duty as economists specifically. We have failed to illustrate the trade-offs in an effective way. And and I too have failed in that in, in the sense that I've been on innumerable television programs, radio programs, print media, podcasts like this, uh, you know, all sorts of everywhere I could, trying to open people's eyes to the trade-offs that we were making implicitly. And yet we still have had the policies that we've had. I've testified to the Victorian Parliament and yet um, they're still in lockdown. So I have have failed and there have not been enough voices, I think, um, trying to make the same arguments. And that's been very disconcerting and, and, and discouraging for me in some ways, but it, it also, you know, makes me feel like, well, I just got to keep going mm. because I know that this is right. Mm. And so I'm, I'm a very principled person in, in the sense of, you know, having a very, very strong sense of what is right and what is wrong. Mm. And I can see that right now I have to keep trying for this country mm. to to open its eyes. And so that's that's where my charity is is, mm. is directed at the moment. And I don't take any of this stuff personally because I'm a behavioral economist. So I see what has happened as essentially a bunch of uh, phenomena that can be you know broadly swept under the rubric of behavioral economics, behavioral biases, um, dynamics that have to do with the things that I study, groups and identity and power and, and fear, all of those things. I study them. I study love. Mm. I'm one of the few economists who studies love. I've got papers about how to model mm. it. And, and because I think it is so very, very important, and it's my love for this country 
and, and my love for the people in it that has motivated my actions over the course of the last six months. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you. I mean, you've spoken a lot about, um, you know, economics as a methodology of, in this case, obviously, uh, evaluating, you know, even social distancing and, and, and probably even putting a value on social distancing. And uh, uh, your work is using economics to, to evaluate love. Can, do you think economics would be helpful in, in building a principle of charity? I mean, could, the, could you build a model? on how to be charitable? <laughs> so two things, I guess. One, I, I have a model of love. If you call love the genesis of charity, um, read my book. I've got a model of the genesis of, of, of that process, which is something incredibly important, unbelievably fundamental to human motivation and widely ignored by my discipline. Mm -hmm. The first, the second thing to say is I'm actually speaking, uh, scheduled to speak in March, I think, at uh, something called the Nexus Foundation event, which brings together a whole bunch of philanthropically minded young rich kids, basically, mm -hmm. uh, who want to be told how to spend their money. Mm -hmm. Um, for the best, for the betterment of humanity or for the, you know, the best uh, value they can mm. get. And so I'm in the process of putting together some recommendations, uh, which will be built very much on my understanding of what true charity, true love really is as a teaser uh, to, to test yourself on whether, you know, what you're saying you value really is what you value, whether you truly are loyal to a cause. Ask yourself, would you be willing to sacrifice for that cause or that person even if that person would never know that it was you who had made the sacrifice mm. and you the next moment wouldn't know it was you mm. either, but it would truly have hurt you. Mm. So would you give mm. a cookie right now to someone and wake up the next morning not knowing that, you know, you'd given that kidney to that person, but just realizing you only had one left, mm. the other person gets the kidney, has no idea it was mm. you. Would you be willing to mm. do it? That's unseen, unrewarded, externally mm. unrewarded mm. sacrifice. And that's what true love really okay. is. Okay, thank you. Matt, Matt, uh, like to maybe uh, focus on you a little or, or speak to you a little about the principle of charity. I mean, did you learn anything surprising uh, that has maybe changed your mind to uh, see more of the the benefits of, of a cost-benefit analysis? In it's interesting, right, because when a lot of times when these conversations are, are set up, um, you, you usually find that, um, that people who take the issue seriously um, don't fall into really strong absolutist camps. Mm. Um, and, and what's been interesting in this conversation is like a lot of a lot of the things with this with this conversation build differently would wind up being a kind of you know a lot of furious agreement. Like yes, we should be quantifying more than just the really obvious externalities like who lives and who dies. Like mm. yes, mm. we should be quantifying mental health. And yes, the idea of well being and moving from a GDP to like a, a national well being register and things like that. These are things that I want to champion and support. The idea is not that. We must never ever quantify, and the project of quantification is somehow is somehow morally noxious. Um, I think that it's a it's just a question of of where, when, and how. Mm. Um, and and I think that the 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 issue of COVID nineteen in particular is probably where some of those points of of differentiation arise. Digging digging into this, I think um, I think more closely, and I think what's been interesting through throughout this conversation is uh, is it's confirmed for me a few things that um, that I had inferred from seeing public debate, which is that there are people who have used Gigi's arguments um, in ways that I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that you, Gigi, would entirely agree with, and they've been writing in national broadsheets and giving um, very, very oversimplified, um, callous and reckless versions of this argument um, that that I think have have done an injustice to you and the ways that you want to think through this problem. 
Um, and I think I have been guilty throughout this process of putting a group of people into a category of like these people hold the position of X mm -hmm. when there's a lot of nuance and a lot of sophistication yeah. within within that cohort of people. And I think d d digging into that more and even undertaking this, you know, I, I felt quite intimidated coming into this because I do think that you are by far the best proponent of, of the argument that's being provided here. And you are, of, of all of the people who um, who I've disagreed with um, in this process, you are the one that I was most intimidated about doing that with because um, because you've got receipts and you, and you know what you're talking about. And I think that's that's what has been difficult and uncomfortable about this. So it would be naive of me to walk away um, and just say, well, you know, I, in, in some aspects of this conversation, you know, I got my butt handed to me and yet I'm still going to hold firmly to my views. Um, but, but that's also because I didn't necessarily think that there, there were absolutes about this to begin with. Um, I think there are certainly, there's certainly room for evaluation and measurement and I wouldn't want to discount that. I just don't want it to be everything. Oh, thanks. Thanks to both of you. I mean, what strikes me with these conversations is just how, you know, you both come to this with the same incredibly good intentions, the moral intentions, the aim to promote flourishing and reduce suffering. And it's just interesting how people come to different conclusions in good faith. And that even within that, there's an enormous amount of common ground, way more common ground than there will be differences. Um, and, you know, I, I think this is true for so many people in societies today that uh, there is a lot of good faith on both sides. Sometimes there's not good faith, but often um, the the differences are, uh, are discussed and expanded upon, but the common ground isn't as much. So I hope that uh, listeners have got a sense of, even though you do come from opposite sides of the track here, most things are things that you probably hold in common. Thank you so much to you both for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Gigi. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.